Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Evening. See who's back? Our pastor emeritus and his lovely wife have returned, tanned, rested, and ready for whatever. Uh, I'm going uh, to pray for the sick tonight. I'm going to tell you that up front. That's where we're going. I mentioned a while back that I'm gonna, we're going to do that pretty regularly, somewhat regularly, on Wednesday nights at least. I'm not, you know, God can interrupt or whatever. It's just it's in my heart. It's my plan uh, that, that this is something, since healing is such a central part of the gospel, it's something we're going to on purpose pay attention to on a very regular basis. And uh, I just felt very strongly uh, that, that tonight was the night. So that's the direction we're going. Uh, and, and let's just dive in here because there's a lot of scripture I want to look at. And it's all geared toward preparing you to receive healing. Amen? I'm not going to get up here and preach a sermon on something completely other. And, then, and not you understand, whatever is happening, whatever the message is. And then God says, hey, I want you to pray for the sick. The anointing is there, the power is there, the promise is always there. But since I know this is where we're going, anything that I can do uh, to, again, prepare your heart, encourage you, stir your faith up, that's what we're going to do. So we're going to look at some scriptures. A lot of them are going to be pretty familiar. Some of them, uh, you might think, uh, if, if, you, if you didn't see them in the context in which we're looking at them tonight, you might think they're odd choices for healing scriptures, but there are several of them. So let's dive in and let's start with, a, with an easy one, with a, a familiar one in Psalm 103. My favorite. It's my favorite, so it's all downhill after this. No. It's all good. Psalm 103. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to read the opening verses. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is a fantastic passage. I would urge you to memorize those first few verses because they say some things about not what God just does occasionally. It's about, it's saying some deep and important things clear specific things about his character this is something he is this is who he is it's it's what he does because of who he is this is the lord who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases this is who he is so bless him with your mouth Um, i'm going to look at this promise here in deuteronomy chapter 7 if you don't want to turn to all these scriptures just listen real well or read them on the screen Uh, But Deuteronomy 7, verse 15 says this, And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Now this is in the middle. give you a little context because it's been a while since we were there. Deuteronomy was a sermon that Moses, a sermon slash prophecy that Moses is delivering to the children of Israel after they have... uh, uh, spent their 40 years wandering. You know, they, they, God brought them out of Egypt with, a, with great power, 
uh, mighty power and an outstretched arm, and he did all these miracles, all these things, and then uh, they refused to enter the promised land. They, they spent 40 years waiting for that first generation to die out, and now they're ready to go in, and Moses is saying, before you cross over, here's some things you've got to know. This is the deal God is making you. This law that he gave us 40 years ago, this is to define how you live as a people. So if you will do these things, if you will be righteous, God will do this for you. And this is a long list of the things he's going to do. And we're not going to look at all the rest of them, but they're great. They're wonderful promises. Promises of safety, promises of prosperity, and here the promise of healing. And it's very clear. We'll take away from you all sickness. That's a great thing. And it's pretty inclusive, isn't it? Remember it for just a second, because again, what's he talking about? He's talking about the blessings of obedience. Now, let me ask you this. Does God ever make people sick? Want to bet? Did you read the other part of that verse there? I will, I will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Hang on. Exodus chapter 15. Beginning in verse 25. So he cried out to the, to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to, all his, command, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Hang on just a second. Let me read one more. Micah chapter 6. Verse 13. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. So, yeah, uh, I get it. Sickness is not part of God's nature. I don't believe that God invented sickness. I believe sickness, and I'll make this point again as we get toward the end when we wrap it up. Sickness is in the world because sin is in the world. But God manipulates these things. And, and, and again, God saying, I will make you sick or lay sickness on you can be something as simple as him removing his healing hand. But what is clearly expressed in these scriptures is that God will make decisions and take actions that will result in the sickness of some people. My question is, when did he do that and who did he do it to? Did he make sick, because it's very clear in here, who he did it to and why he did it. Was it ever to build their character, to grow them up, to mature them, to make them better people? No, it was judgment. It was punishment. Whether it was the Egyptians or whether it was Israel, it was always a threat of punishment. It was a manifestation of the curse. You break my law, and these things are going to be on you again. All right? So going back to Deuteronomy, here's the way it was set up. And knowing what we know about the law and and human nature and sin nature, because of what we've been reading in Romans, it kind of seems like a cruel joke. God says, here's my law. Just do these things perfectly. And you won't have to worry about your, your vats being empty. You won't have to worry about your cattle dying. You won't have to worry about being sick because there'll be no diseases. I'll, I'll take all sickness from your midst. Well, what's the catch there? 
Did God know for certain that we would not be able to keep the law? Yes, he did. So was that just a cruel thing to say? He knew we weren't going to keep the law, so why promise us all those good things? No, because built right into the law is a great manifestation of God's mercy called the sacrifice system. Do this and you will live. Do this and I will take sickness from your midst. But if you blow it, i.e. when you blow it, do this. Here is how you express godly sorrow for when you don't keep my law. Uh, He was driving home the message with the sacrifice system, the blood sacrifice system, that sin results in death. And that sin requires a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. And we see this clear back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve uh, finally, you know, they come out before God when God's doing it. Hey, Adam, where are you? And he comes out and, and, they, and they've sewn leaves together uh, to cover themselves because they realize they're naked. And what did God do? He, took, he killed animals and clothed them with the skin of that animal. No, those leaves aren't enough. Death is required. Blood is required. This is how serious sin is. So God gives them the law, warns them of the consequences of breaking the law, knowing, of course, that thanks to the sin nature, they're going to break the law, and within the law itself provides a covering, provides an atonement. It still didn't work. This is crucial. This is where we're going to look at a couple, a couple scriptures. It didn't work because when they observed the law at all, and I'm talking about the sacrifice portion of it, and you have to remember, too, that they went through whole periods of time when they just didn't. They didn't bother. They didn't bother keeping the feasts. They didn't bother, uh, you know, even the Passover. And they just ignored whole chunks of the law for whole chunks of their history. And there may have been individuals from time to time who did, all right? Uh, But, I mean, the whole priesthood, fell into to great disre- disrepute. They had to they, remember when they uh, when Josiah became king and they what did they find to their shock? They found the book of the law. They didn't even have it. And they start reading it. Have you guys seen what this said? Oh no, we're doing all this wrong. How could they be following it when they didn't even have the book? So, the problem was when they did observe the sacrifice part It was nothing more than legalistic rituals. They were just going through the motions. God meant these things as an expression, again, of godly sorrow. Let me read this. Let me read Micah again first. This is the most famous passage in Micah. uh, In Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, did the Lord require a sacrifice? Yeah, he did. But what was the sacrifice supposed to be symbolic of? What was it supposed to express? Godly sorrow. What was he wanting? This is what he wants. Uh, Amos chapter 5. Beginning in verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Now wait a second. The feast days and the sacred assemblies. Who ordained those in the first place? God did. These are his ideas. So he's saying your feast days and your sacred assemblies. Well they're his. 
But listen, I, I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I'll, I'll save comment here until I read a couple more of these. Isaiah 1.1. Or one eleven. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Hmm. Now, do you remember, speaking of the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, do you remember at the temple dedication ceremony when Solomon... Uh, dedicated the temple and the thousands, the tens of thousands of animals that were sacrificed there. I mean, there was blood running in the streets and God delighted in that. I mean, the fire fell and he ate up that sacrifice. That was a delight. So he's not talking about the whole system. He's talking about, he's talking to them in their period of time and the way they're approaching the sacrifices in their day. Uh, And then perhaps my favorite uh, along this line in Psalm 51. This is the, David's famous uh, psalm, uh, prayer of repentance after he is confronted uh, by Nathan the prophet after his sin with Bathsheba and having her husband killed. And uh, this is a prayer of repentance. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But remember, what he did was bad, bad, bad. Way worse than anything Saul ever did. But he says here, and writes here in verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You see, when we keep the law just for the sake of of keeping the law, the law kills because we can't keep it perfectly. When we are doing it, we've got to do everything exactly right because of what the law says. And that means we're hanging our life on the law. We know we're going to blow it and we break it in one part, we break the whole thing and, we're, and, and we die. What we are learning, and this dovetails so nicely with what we are learning on Sunday mornings in Romans, but I'll lay it out like this. Again, sickness is in the world because sin is in the world. God gave the law to show the kind of life we are supposed to lead and says that if we're righteous, he won't make us sick. If sickness touches us, he heals us if we are righteous. And even if we fail to be righteous, and we do, He says, here's how you express your sorrow correctly. And it's the sacrifices. This is still speaking under the law. And the problem, again, was they were offering the sacrifices without having or experiencing any actual sorrow. Oops, I sinned. Here's another sacrifice. Head on down to the temple and throw a throw a couple of turtle doves or a or young lamb over the wall to the to the priests. Paid your paid your dues. So therefore, their sin remained. 
And God told him, yeah, you're wasting your time. The, he said at one point, the incense you're burning is a stench in my nostrils. It's supposed to be a sweet-smelling savor, right? Uh, but their sin remained because they were using the law just as, again, as payment rather than using it as an expression of any genuine sorrow. They weren't sorry. Now, as we've been reading in Romans, all have sinned. And the sin nature is the problem. Paul has made this point masterfully in the early chapters of Romans. And what's the solution that he offers masterfully? A new nature. This is what we need, a new nature. If the standard is righteousness, if being righteous is how we qualify as inheritors of all the promises of God, including healing, and it is, then we must be made righteous. And the good news is that the final perfect sacrifice has been made. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. You know, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And he said to people, he said this in person to many people, he said what? Your sins are forgiven. When he was confronted with sinners, he forgave sinners. And then he went to the cross to provide, forgive, to provide forgiveness of all sin. But who, who gets it? Who gets to take advantage of that? People who reach out in faith. He made forgiveness available to all who would believe at the cross. But while he was walking the earth, he did this. He, he personally and with his mouth forgave sins. This is what I do. I forgive sins. Then he goes to the cross to provide access to forgiveness to anyone who would believe. While he walked the earth, what did he do? He healed people personally, multitudes of people. And then he went and took those stripes on his back and went to the cross to provide healing for everyone who would believe. To provide for everyone the things that he did in person while he was uh, during his earthly ministry. Listen, God does not have to appear and do something new tonight to heal you any more than Jesus has to hang on the cross and die again to forgive you. We have no problem, uh, at least in theory, I know some of us uh, from time to time we wrestle with guilt over something that happened many, many years ago, or maybe we wrestle with guilt of something we can't let go of today, but we understand that the mechanism by which we are forgiven is something that was done 2,000 years ago. We totally get that God doesn't have to do anything else to Jesus to get us forgiven. We get that, right? But somehow we think we have to stir something up and get some, some, uh, something tangible in here that God has to reach down and touch us to heal us. But the same mechanism that saves us and forgives us heals us. It was the same sacrifice, and it's twofold. First of all, let me show you this. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, remember, what's the standard? How do we qualify for all the promises of God? We've got to be righteous, right? It's righteousness. And in 1 Corinthians 5.21, this is glorious. You need to, you need to highlight this. He says, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5.21, sorry about that. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How, how do we get righteous? We don't get righteous. We are made righteous 
by God. If you are in Christ, you qualify. That's it. Forgiveness takes effect in your life when you reach out by faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We get that, right? How do we express that faith? Christ died, makes forgiveness, salvation available to everybody. And when we express faith in that finished work, we're forgiven, we're saved. How do we express that faith? Speaking, praying, confessing, and baptism. I throw baptism in there for a couple of reasons. We've got a, we're planning a baptism service. We've got, I think, five people signed up. Uh, and if you uh, know anybody who's part of this fellowship who has given their heart to Christ uh, but has not been water baptized, encourage them to do that. I encourage you to do that. Uh, baptism is, is one of those things, one of the things that, that's been a, a point of contention uh, between denominations is do you have to be baptized to be saved? And, and they, the short answer is no meaning simply that baptism isn't what saves you. But people who put a lot more emphasis on baptism than we do, sometimes they're they're sort of victims of their own tradition. They they put an awful lot of emphasis and even link it to salvation without really knowing why. Uh, But if you really dug back into the origins of that belief, it's pretty solid. And it's simply, I would simply put it this way, even if they wouldn't express it this way, I think they would agree that baptism is simply their way of expressing their faith in the finished work of Christ. You understand that? And it's, and it's quite biblical because the, the, it, Jesus, Paul, all the, you know, they really linked, the baptism was something you did when you got saved. It wasn't the water that saved you. Uh, but, uh, you know, Jesus himself, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, it's important to note that he didn't say, he, and then he says, he who does not believe will be damned. He doesn't say he who is not baptized. However, Baptism, it's, it's really not, even though I don't consider it a crucial, you know, a, a salvific thing, you know, the, 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 the crazy question we always used to ask, well, what if you trip and fall and break your neck on the way to the baptismal, you know, does that mean you get saved? What if you drown while you're underwater, uh, you know, but if you're electrocuted by the microphone, you went down but you didn't come up, did you complete the baptism, are you saved? These are silly questions, uh, but, but the point is, again, it's, it's not the water that saves you, uh, but just because it's not necessary for salvation doesn't mean that God intends for it to be optional. So baptism, long way of saying, that's just one of, that's one of the ways with our prayer. That's how we express our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Healing takes effect in your life when you reach out by faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and in those stripes. This is something I want to Man, it's 10 till already. Let's just do this quickly. This is so powerful and so beautiful. You have to understand, why is sickness in the world today? Because sin is in the world. So, if you you remove the guilt and the stain and the effect of sin, if you replace the sin nature with a new nature, that, to be perfectly honest, should take care of the sickness problem too. And I believe it does. But I believe God loves us so much and wanted to drive the healing message home so powerfully that Jesus took those stripes, and it says in Isaiah, by his stripes we are healed. He took those stripes physically in his body, allowed that body to be broken to express specifically his desire and his will and his purpose to heal us physically. You understand, I believe that the cross and the blood 
we're essentially enough because that puts us in a righteous state and therefore we can expect the promises of the righteous. But I believe God went the extra mile just to show us, yes, healing is part of this. So the whole crucifixion process, including uh, the stripes on his back, is what we look to. And so, what I say? Uh, healing takes effect when we reach out in faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and those stripes. How do we express that faith? If we express our faith in the finished work of Christ for salvation by praying, by believing, and baptism, how do we express our faith for healing? Well, you can speak it over yourself. You absolutely can, and you should. I believe your first response to symptoms in your body, your first response to any diagnosis should be, I do not receive this. I speak to this sickness. I command my body. I'm standing on the authority that is mine as a righteous uh, son of the king. I speak to my body and command it to be free of every form of sickness and disease, every disorder, uh, every pain, uh, all forms of disease and sickness. I command to leave every bone and muscle and, and so on and so forth. I say, I say this over myself every day. Uh, whether I'm feeling anything or not. We should be speaking those things. We should be fighting it like that personally. How else though? Well, uh, when we are assembled like this, it is entirely appropriate to lay hands on the sick. Jesus said to lay hands on the sick and they would recover. He said, you know, if there's any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and they'll, they'll anoint him with oil and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Uh, so there, it's, the, the point is, let's don't get legalistic and ritualistic about it. There's not a right way to do it, except that we must be in faith. We must be expecting. So we're going to have a prayer line. A, 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 we're going to have a healing line, all right? We're going to lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. We're not going to ask God. We're not going to be praying because we're not going to ask God to heal you. Why? You're already healed. He already did that work. So I want the band come back up here um, and if you need to be prayed for you can just duck out of your instrument and come down if you need to be healed sorry what I'm going to do is lay my hands on you there's nothing magical about my hands there's nothing spooky about this it's simply a point of contact it's where it's just a it's a physical expression of me agreeing with you that you are righteous and entitled to a healing work in your body anointing oil works the same way also I firmly believe that when God moves on me or anyone like he did on me today to have a service where we pray for the sick, I think it's a reasonable expectation that the gift of healing will be in operation. Let me read this very, very quickly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is uh, the first of three chapters that deal with the gifts. Uh, just back to back, 12, 13, and 14. And you say, well, no, 13's about love. No, it's all part of the gifts. <laughs> it's all part of the same, uh, same conversation here. But in uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So, this is a gift. And if we're going to have a healing service, and if these gifts are manifested, they're given to one for the profit of all, I believe, let me, let me in fact, before I make this next statement, let me read this other uh, same chapter, skipping down to verse 29. It says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? 
but earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet, I show, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now, I don't have time to break this whole down. There's a lot in that little bit I just read. Uh, but I do like the old King James there a little bit better, where it says, covet the best gifts. And I like the, the definition of covet that I would use there is don't be satisfied without it. That the you know, sin of covetousness is not to be satisfied with something that, that's not yours to be jealous of somebody else because they have it. Here, it's, it's, uh, there's a, it's the good kind of coveting. We shouldn't be satisfied without the best gifts. Well, how, how would you rank the gifts? I, my, my favorite uh, explanation of that verse I learned from Bob Yanyan, who said the best gift is the one that is needed at any given moment. And there, therefore, if, we're, if there are sick people in here tonight, and there probably are, uh, I don't think, I mean... Oh, man, there's all this, this flood of things that are coming into my mind. I don't have time to share them all. But let me share this one thing. Even if there's not a single manifestly sick person in here, if we do 10 healing services in a row and nobody ever comes up and gets prayed for, I'm still going to be glad we did it for the same reason that I'm glad I do an altar call every single Sunday. I've shared this with you before. I look around and I'm thinking, I know everybody in here is saved, but I'm still going to do an altar call. Why? Because I want you to hear the altar call. Because when the time comes for you to lead somebody to Christ, I want you to have that stuff nailed down inside your brain. And the same way with the healing service. Scott, everything you've said tonight I've heard before. Great. I want you to hear it ten times. I want you to hear it a hundred times. I want you to hear it so well that you can preach it yourself because that's what this is all about. I want you to be able to pray for the sick and teach others to pray for the sick and explain to them why you're praying for them or why you are laying hands on them expecting them to be healed. Amen? So, but if we're going to lay hands on the sick, I believe... If the gifts are in operation, and I absolutely believe they are, wouldn't it be an odd thing for God to say, uh, when you're assembled, I distribute gifts, and I do them. Somebody's going to have a particular gift, but it's going to be for the profit of everybody else. If we're going to have a healing service, don't you think it would make sense that God is going to manifest the healing gift? Well, how do you know you have the gift of healing? I don't think you necessarily need to read this as, oh, you've got the gift of healing. That's your permanently endowed gift. You speak in tongues. You interpret. No, whatever's needed at that moment, you make yourself available to flow in that. Now stand up. And Greta, speaking of gifts of the Spirit, she came up to me. You guys thought I shot her down, didn't you? She came up with a word. Uh, for she had, she had a couple words about sickness in, in, uh, in the body. Why don't you come up here and give those? And I told her, we're going to pray for the sick, so hang on to those. Uh, because now would be the time. You guys can stand up because you're going to come up here uh, and line up in a minute anyway. Someone here, um, we kept um, singing in the song about kneeling before the Lord and the song again and again. We kept hearing that. And it was like the Lord had said there, he wants to heal someone with their knees. Now, I know some people can't get up real easy, but I'm talking about somebody with knee issues. The Lord wants to heal those tonight. And then also, um, there's something with intestines, intestinal issue. The Lord okay. wants to heal tonight. Those two things. Now, before you come up here, uh, and don't leave, Greta, uh, healing, according to Jesus, is the children's bread. Now, do I believe we can lay hands on the sick even if they're unbelievers and see them recover? I think we can. But it's a covenant right for the believer. So before we go any further, I just want to make sure everybody in here is saved. 
you're, how long do you have to be a believer before you qualify for healing? <laughs> as soon as you're a believer, you're qualified. You're... Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.